Welcome back to Jokerman Podcast. It's the podcast about Lou Reed this week. Sometimes right. it's the podcast about John Cale these days. Heck, sometimes, well, sometimes it's still a podcast about Bob Dylan a little bit, but it, it used to be all the time. Um, I'm I'm just kind of going through this to let you know, Tom. That's what that's what that we what we used to do back in those days. Um, oh, I'm fully aware. Are you? Of what you used to do? Okay. Yes. You think I? You think I don't know a podcast called Jokerman is going to be a well shucks I don't Bob know Dylan related <laughs> come on guys come on I'm just joking you get it um I'm Evan by the way I'm Ian and as you can already hear we're joined by uh, uh, internet radio broadcaster extraordinaire uh, the other half of the Sharpling and Worcester duo we got we got John a couple years ago so we're done with him now we're on now we're on to Tom. Tom, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Please, the pleasure is all ours. And thank you uh, for a little, you know, a little inside baseball. It took us a while to get this hammered out. We kept trying to get you on for Lou Reed Live uh, because we were stuck on that for like a month uh, over the summer. And that was just what was available. And then, then we got it figured out. Tom Sharpling on the program to talk Street Hassle. One of the greats, one of the big ones. Can't, can't think of a, a, a better match. Match made in heaven. Thank you. I'm so proud to be associated with Street Hassle. Uh, don't the first don't thing say that yet. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> when when we were uh, emailing and I gave you a list of a couple ones, you know, this, this, and this, you just responded all caps, Street Hassle, like with an exclamation mark. Uh, like what what is it about Street Hassle for you that, uh, that that makes this the one? Well, I would say just straight up, it's... I think it's his best solo album of the his best album of the 70s. I think Street Hassles is best album of the 70s. And it, it's probably it's probably his best. You could argue that it's his best album. Sure. For for what he accomplished with it and the, the place that it happened in his body of work and outside of the Look, I, I, I'm a. I shouldn't even be answering that question because I I think there's only um, like one bad Lou Reed album. Mm. Oh, one that's actually bad. I think like every every album has something to offer. Even the weaker ones have gems here and there. Sure, moments. Mm-hmm. But I think there's only one that that I would not go back and listen to and you which can, one is that let's hear some guesses oh guess. um, i think that uh we've got probably a guess between yeah. us yeah. um 
Let me see. I, it's got a... <laughs> it's a legal term, the the title of the of this record that I'm thinking of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's yeah, that's. Uh, I think it's his only bad album. It that, and even that one has some stuff to recommend it. I think if you're that really one, trying, we could <laughs> just not say what it's called. <laughs> we'll get there. Uh, you know, uh, folks at home, uh, you know what came out in 1986 from Bob Dylan. Oh, you know. You want to One of the high points in the discography. It's mm-hmm. what if I told you there was a Lou Reed record exactly as good as Knocked Out Loaded? Yeah, they were both <laughs> in very different places, but somehow were doing the same thing. Yeah. Uh, Although, you know, it's Tell It to Your Heart, beautiful song. That's why I'm, even I'm the best that's the but it's the only one that tips more toward the to the bad to the degree where I would not reach for it anytime soon. Yeah, at least he looks yeah. cool on the cover of that one. He's just got a very classic kind of Lou look, mm-hmm. to very not classic Lou sound on the actual music on that record. But at least if you're looking at it on the wall in your collection, yeah. you know, hey, that's Lou Reed. He's wearing sunglasses and a leather jacket. <laughs> what else do you want? Absolutely. Well, what I want is seeing uh, the cover of Street Hassle, uh, for example. Speaking of sunglasses and a leather jacket. Yeah. Yeah. Now, what I would say Street Hassle, you could make a case. It's. I think it could be his best, his best album. Well, I th- I think we're gonna get into that further as we just naturally talk about the songs, because I think there's a lot to say about why that might be the case. But before we do that, I mean, do you want to just sort of give like a rundown, of like where where does your Lou Reed uh, uh, fandom or or relationship with the music really come uh, from? Like, where when did you really start taking? his solo career into consideration, all that. Um, I think the first album I would have bought would have been, what would it have been? New Sensations, probably, would be the sure. first one I bought. Um, and at that time, that was pushed on everybody as being a... Uh, a return to form for <laughs> Lou and for as like a it was a popular album in the scheme of things also it was you had the I love you Suzanne you had a video for that and, right. and then you had the, the Honda my red joystick and you had the Honda commercial the scooter commercial around the same time he was kind of becoming Lou Reed to the to the populace, right? You know the the idea of Lou Reed was something more than just a uh, a Lower East Side concept. It was now he represented that to everybody. Suddenly, it's like mm-hmm. if you want New York, Lou Reed's one of the guys from New York, America. So <laughs> yeah, I I think he was, and he was seemed a lot happier and. Healthier was having too. fun, healthier, yeah, certainly. Um, but then from there, I've heard other people on the show cite, um, I think Michael Imperioli said that REM was a gateway to the VU side of things, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and strangely enough, at that point, it was so much easier after New Sensations, it was easier to get VU and another view. The, odds and ends collections than it was to get the four albums the original stuff yeah so uh 
I had heard REM covers on bootlegs and on B-sides, I believe. There was Femme Fatale and there was Pale Blue Eyes. And I had been reading enough about rock music. I was just obsessed with reading about rock music. So I, I knew about these things, but I had yet to hear these things. Uh, so then I got VU and I didn't even know I was dealing with, with just outtakes basically at that point. Right. It didn't matter. They were, they were amazing. Any band would be lucky to have those outtakes as their best songs. Totally. Um, and then it was just all the way in on VU on the Velvet Underground and they're, look, I, I think they're the best band that's ever existed. Agreed. Velvet Underground. No band has Hello. ever accomplished what they, they have four albums. I'm not going to, and everybody wants to be funny and says, what about Squeeze? And then you say, Squeeze uh -huh. doesn't count. <laughs> um, but it's like they have four albums. Each one is wildly different from the other. Each one invents some aspect of music of rock music and of or combining rock music and experimental whatever it is each record accomplishes something so wildly different than the previous one and four records all four are perfect and they're out and that's they i don't know what a band how a band could accomplish more than that in that short amount of time yep. not possible impossible yes and just a pretty constant, uh, you know, uh, like one for one, like attempt and hit rate from them. Like, like no one has as high of a batting average, I think, uh, song for song as the Velvets do just, you know, going through. Cause there basically are no, you can like some sounds, some versions of the band more than mm -hmm. others. Obviously we've had that conversation quite a bit uh, between Evan and I, but like, you know, it, it just like song for song from the beginning of uh, VU and Nico right to the end of Loaded, it's just like, they're all hits, like top to bottom. Absolutely. And everybody wants to know which one is the the one for each person. Sure. But for me, it's honestly, I don't think there is one. It depends. I'm the one who changes. They all <laughs> four stay perfect. I change. <laughs> and then one of the four fits me better at that given well, we that's know that perfect, very well because that's the we, perfect mindset. This record, Street Hassle, I think is like a major, a major statement of of any popular music artist in terms of sort of uh, having a self referential record um, mm -hmm. that also has that kind of ambition. This one is a particularly volatile and ugly and uh, brave and. Uh, and very stupid at times uh, <laughs> record. It is exactly. It is as much you could say, and I'm just thinking this right now, if each of those VU albums cover a certain aspect of him, like Street Hassle covers all of them Yes, uh, mm -hmm. in one record. And I don't know if he has a record that has all of the ugliness and all of the beauty and funny parts and parts that he is trying to be funny and coming up short mm -hmm. and um it just has every version the the beauty of lou reed is that in the imperfection of the human none of the records i think are perfect 
I don't, I don't, I, except for the VU albums, none of the solo albums are truly where you'd say that is a perfect record. There's always a moment that's a little clunky, a weird turn of phrase that just lands wrong. <laughs> I love those. Some, <laughs> oh, I do too, but yeah. that's the, but that's right. the strength. There's a strength. The perfection comes from the imperfection, if that sure. makes sense. Like, it's not like with, with Lou, you go, oh, well, that album is the masterpiece, the unqualified perfect record. The other one's not so much this and that. It's it's kind of the opposite. It's like almost all of them are just great and have something to offer, but none of them are perfect. Right, which is what makes going through his discography so rewarding, I think, piece by piece, because there is no, like, rumors for for Lou. There is no Asia where, like, you can really just say, like, that's the one, go there, mm -hmm. you know, and you get everything from that, and you don't need to worry about digging through the rest of it. Like, it really rewards the ability to, uh, you know, kind of sift through some of the muck, mm -hmm. some of the... Uh, you know, comedy, uh, quote unquote songs like we'll get to talk to talk about on this record in a minute um, for the diamonds in the rough that so often appear on uh, or, the, or the big shiny diamond at the end of the tunnel, the shiny diamond covered in shit. Well, that exists at the end of the tunnel, but it's the yeah, biggest we, diamond in the world. <laughs> <laughs> we saw you talking, uh, or heard you talking with uh, Will and Matt from Chapo a little bit about that, Tom, a couple weeks ago. The uh, the Lulu discourse that you uh, just uh, gave out to the world. That was a perfect, yeah, just You laid the law down. It was beautiful. Completely I nailed it. Thank you, and I, till the end of my days, I will be in a state of contrition to Lou. <laughs> For being the worst thing you can be is just like a snarky dick who doesn't get it. It's the lowest of the low to be like, I don't know what I'm talking about, but I know better. Right. It's yeah. like the guy, the guy never did me wrong. And now suddenly I'm saying, well, he's wrong now. It's just like, who, wait, who, who has the better shot of still being right? Him or me yeah. on this one. And it's just like, I didn't make all those records he did. And now I'm going to second guess him in the home stretch. And yes, I, I would hope that when you finally get to Lulu, you do an all-star show. Oh, you get we will. everybody back. Everybody's back for Lulu. It'll be like the Nuremberg trials. We'll get Just everybody. Who, took the words right out of my mouth. It, it's going to be a, a spectacular, just like that was. Um, let's talk about the music. This first song, Give Me Some Good Times, when I first heard it, it was like a completely revelatory song for me. Something about him returning to Sweet Jane, returning to this period, this like halcyon days of his earliest career with this like uh, withering gla like glare at, at himself at everything that that was. And, and it sounds so triumphant and so hideous. It's I'm a sucker for anything that's like ugly in a triumphant way and this song is like one of the masterpieces of that. Hey, if it ain't the rock and roll animal itself, what you doing, bro? Standing on the corner. Well, I can see that. What you got in your hand? She kisses my hand. Oh, shit. What it is? Yeah, Hexen's closest is in her best. Fucking figure, Johnson Chain. I'm a new rock and roll band. Well, I can see that. I have a theory about this song. Mm. I, I've never, I don't think I've run it by anybody, 
You tell me what you think of this. Do you know do you know who Dickie Goodman was at all? I don't know that I know who Dickie Goodman okay. was. In the seven in the seventies, there was a guy named Dickie Goodman. Okay. Who had a hit record uh, a couple of years before Street Hassle called Mr. Jaws, where it consisted of him interviewing Jaws, where he'd be like, We're here talking to the shark and uh Mr. Jaws, what do you think about the beach? And then, he, but then they would play like "Dino oh My," like a like a record. Like they play these little snippets of records. He's doing a version of that with <laughs> Sweet Jane. All I'm gonna say, I don't want to tell you how to do your show. If you listen to listen to 30 seconds of Mr. Jaws, and you'll see what I'm talking about. We are here on the beach where a giant shark has just eaten a girl swimmer. Well, Mr. Jaws, how was it? Dino! And what did she say when you grabbed her? Please, Mr. Please. I know sharks are stupid, but what did you think when you took that first bite? How sweet it is. Mr. Jaws, before you swim out to sea, have you anything else to say? By this point, also, the legend of Lou Reed is, is pretty towering with between the all the Lester Bang stuff and all of the he's just and now we're we're at the point where he's getting called the godfather of punk sure. uh, it would be about now so he is contending with his own legend kind of for the the next generation is starting now the punk movie we're talking 77 78 punk's coming in he's now clearly the previous generation but he has such he carries such importance to the current generation, but he's still at this point a guy in his thirties. He's not. That's he's crazy. not. He's not in his seventies and waving goodbye on a victory lap. He's still trying to fight for his piece of the pie with this stuff, and he's still trying to figure himself out. While there's a new crop coming up, who are calling, basically calling him dad, right. and. He is still just like, I'm not your dad. I'm still chasing the thing too, guys. I just might be <laughs> 10 years ahead of you. The the last two records really don't go into that. Like he does Metal Machine music where it kind of like laps everybody like in a, like a fucking quantum leap. And mm. then he spends, he like, it earns him time to do these two softer, relatively softer, more mm. like, you know, they don't sound like punk records per se, mm. but this record it seems like he's coming back with a vengeance on like the whole, um, the actual menace and aggression that is a, such a part of early, the earliest Velvet Underground. Absolutely. No, can, I, can I put a concept out there and I want to slow the show down, but it's Please. like, do you feel when you look at the entirety of the catalog, I feel that Lou often pushes, 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 and then, cycles back to like the basics like it seems like a pattern and i think rock and roll heart is one of those it's almost like he has to learn how to write songs again dylan does the same thing those records in the 90s the early 90s which are like uh good as i've been to you and world gone wrong which yeah they're recharge they're battery recharging opportunities before you can kind of really push your put the pedal to the metal and come out with the time out of mind after the folk covers records or the street hassle in this case with the, um, with, uh, with Lou. For, and for Lou, it's fifties rock and roll. Seems exactly. To be the yeah. 
that's like Dylan goes to a different source. And you even have that a little bit more, like not in the same way that you do with Bob, but like I think that New Sensations and Mistrial, right? Like that that like post-Blue Mask, like mid-80s era for Lou, like ultimately leads to the explosion of New York, Drella, and Magic and Loss in like a three-year span. Yeah. So like it, um, you know, they're, they're doing it in different ways, obviously, but I think you're totally on the money. Yeah, that it happens all the time with his, what he's interested in. It It's either like, He's not always going like for max profundity. He's sometimes mm-hmm. just happy to like play rock music because he loves rock songs. Sure Absolutely. Does. And um, I agree with that completely. And he loves uh, a certain rock song. Uh, we, we can presume that he really loved was uh, a certain rock song by one of my favorite rock groups, the Bobby Fuller Four. Very, uh, you know, well, I mean, there's a lot of ugly shit on Street Hassle, some some of which is presented in a very beautiful kind of way, uh, you know, which we'll get to shortly. But uh, Dirt, I think, is just ugly shit presented in an, in ugly, like as ugly as he basically can. Uh, it's kind of the, I mean, it, it uh, for, for us, we can't help, but you've, like Evan, been calling this record Street Legal when we've been talking about it. They both <laughs> came out yeah. in 1978. 78. But like this to me, at slot number two on Street Hassle, is like New Pony, basically, on, on Street Hassle. It's it? just like this like like plotting, trudging, just like unpleasant kind of song. But, but last time I heard New Pony, I was vibing to. I like broke through at some point. That's what I was gonna say. We've learned our lesson. We have we have smoothed out our brains since then. I'm all in on Dirt right off the bat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very. There's a, there's like a jittery quality to the whole album. Yes, like you can feel him vaguely crawling out of his own skin during the making of this record and he was pretty pretty deep into a a, a amphetamine run at this point as well this was like a there was a very sour period for lou yeah yeah right before he's about to get clean the thing that's uh jumps out at me for this song is the, the bobby fuller thing um bobby fuller who was murdered uh, by the way uh, mm-hmm. mysteriously um, represents like kind of the some of the best early rock music um, mm-hmm. and it, it's no coincidence that like a song that kind of is meant to be a, a, as deep a fucking cut at this uh, opponent as he can go I think he it, he like invokes Bobby Fuller and his corpse like, and, mm-hmm. inadvertently as a way to just really dig into uh just how i don't know like the, it, it somehow adds profundity to how much he hates the, the person he's talking to it, it, absolutely and one of the things that that i would say adds to your point is it's the second song on the album what on what planet do you put this second right. on an album <laughs> like you're you want people to hear it if you put it second on the yeah. album yeah. it's not buried on side two you're saying 
this is a part of the reason this album exists is for me for you to hear this message it's ridiculous and it's a message of absolute unfiltered scorn and bile does a great job setting the stage not to sweep us along too quickly but we're gonna have to we're gonna have to dig in on this next one this is basically its own album all on its own could be its own episode exactly uh street hassle the song one of the I, I mean I, I I would have to imagine at this time um, like unexpected kind of unprecedented uh, moments of art with a capital A coming from Lou who up until this point and especially recently in his career and you know the 75 76 era was just kind of playing the part of this like you know uh, sleazy New York dirtbag in love with doo-wop songs and now all of a sudden we're just in fucking a whole other dimension with this track it is like i i look at street hassle the song street hassle as kind of being everything he learned got put into this one piece like mm. every trick every thing he got from john kale playing viola and just like mm-hmm. the beauty and the simplicity and just it's all in there it's it's got scope it's it's got parts it's weird it's surprising it's filthy and it's funny and he gets bruce springsteen on it (laughs) which is and he's doing like a weird joke on his on who he is yeah It, it also is just a testament to the way he always saw himself as a writer who was telling stories that were not necessarily coming from him right these are characters and something he would get into a good decade later when you get into new york where he's full-on playing different parts um it's I would say non-VU Street Hassle is his best song. Wasn't Matilda without her wallet A sexy boy smiled in dismay She took out four twenties Cause she liked round figures Everybody's queen for a day Oh babe I'm on fire And you know I admire your body Why don't we slip away Although I'm sure you're certain It's a rarity McClurton Sha la 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 this way Oh sha la 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 Sha la 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 Hey baby Come on let's slip away Just I don't know what else would be better than it It's pretty hard to argue with that 
I can't I mean, uh, disagree. It's just a towering achievement. Yes. And yeah. it sh- it, it's one of those things when you listen to it, it kind of shouldn't work. But it, like the idea that drums, there's not even a drum sound on it for se- seven minutes. Mm, I don't right. know how long. And then it's just this kind of disembodied snare just kind of echoing alone with no other drums it's just none of the pieces should fit the way they fit on it and they added but they do fit and it adds up to this just i i still listen to it and it's just a question mark to me how somebody could just decide to do this yeah when you mentioned john kale and him learning from it it's like um yeah, this is one of those like really great moments where you know that if when John Cale heard this, he was like, "Ah, oh, shit, I got to step up my game probably a little bit." Mm-hmm. Well, I think what's so striking about this is like, if this song had come from John at this moment in time, I think everyone would have been like, "Oh, that's a great song from John." But like, you know, that's John. We know we know what John can do. He's a classically trained viola player. He's got his classical music. He's got his like deep space explorations with Terry Riley. Of course, he's capable of something like this. But coming from Lou, just like this shit-kicking Long Island, you know, kid who's writing novelty songs at Pickwick as his, you know, kind of background, like, it's, it. that's what makes this so rewarding to me, I think, is, like, he clearly has uh, uh, imbibed all of the, like, um, you know, influences and styles that he picked up on from John and the people that ran around with him at the time but it wasn't shit that came naturally to him the same way that writing songs just you know like uh sitting down at a desk and writing a song like Luke could do didn't come naturally to John um and so just seeing this kind of like emerge as this fucking butterfly out of this chrysalis after a decade out on his own where he's really gone through some highs and lows and and ups and downs it's like it, it's just like it rocks <laughs> I mean, it, it uh-huh. like makes me happy uh, and happy for Lou, uh, you know, retroactively, obviously, to like just know that he he nailed it this fucking hard in 1978 after a, you know, uh, definitely a, kind of a string of, of uh, some diminishing returns, we could say. Before it was like impressive that he was doing these songs for how he kind of from considering his background, it was always impressive. It was always, it was always great when he was doing the early view stuff. Um but this is him raising the bar for himself. And it seems like it's a bit of an effort for him to do that. And I kind of think of it's interesting to see the rest of the record around it as like the product of like the effort that's, that's that went into this song kind of leaves the rest of it being a little bit like exhausted and like just kind sort of, of anemic. Yeah. Yeah, a little anemic, but a, and a little bit sour and exhausted and spent. There's nothing uh, even remotely thrown away on the song Street Hassle. There's nothing that is just uh, particularly spontaneous. It is a premeditated, constructed piece that he can he can be. There's nothing sloppy about it. It's very measured and deliberate. And it's, it's just, it's nothing on the record really has that, this feel you can, you know, he knows how major of a statement this is, and he's going to do it right. Right. 
yeah, it's almost like like the rest of the record is constructed deliberately to be a bunch of kind of like weird sounding, shoddy, sour songs, all of which were recorded live with the crowd noise stripped out, you know, in the production mm-hmm. uh, element, which we can get into momentarily. Like, like he deliberately kind of wants everything that surrounds the title track uh, to be sort of just kind of crufty and and like uh, you just uh, made up a word base. for it. Did I? Crufty? I think that's a word. It's you know what I mean. Clearly, you think it is. <laughs> um, in order to draw, you know, uh, just you know, fucking shine the spotlight on this this eleven minute uh, uh, opus. Really, there's no other way to describe it. And the clearest expression, I think, probably through his entire career, maybe up until honestly, some of those Lulu tracks, um, like Junior Dad, for instance, where like you know we've talked about from the beginning, Lou's desire to graft uh, uh, fine literature, you know, li- you know, literary ambition to rock and roll music. Not saying that this is rock and roll music necessarily, but he's obviously kind of, you know, operating in both worlds, especially with the way the song sounds. Really, you know, the poem is written with this just like super harsh, ugly street vernacular, that cunt's not breathing, you know, that bitch will never fuck again, but like paired against this just like strikingly beautiful, you know, spare kind of classical canvas behind him. It's, um, the, the, the music isn't rock and roll necessarily, but the spirit and the attitude is. And so, you know, the way they kind of combine together, it's like a whole new uh, genre, basically. Hey, that cunt's not breathing. I think she's had too much or something or other. I mean, you know what I mean? I don't mean to scare you, but you're the one who came here and you're the one who's got to take her when you leave. I'm not being smart or trying to be cool in my part, and I'm not going to wear my heart on my sleeve. But you know, people get all emotional and sometimes, man, they just don't act rationally. Oh, they think they're just on TV. Shalala, man. He's honoring Delmore Schwartz, I think, with this song in a way that he he attempted to do on Berlin, and then this this song feels like actually kind yes, of this like is this is Berlin he fucking done right exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and and the other thing that it's interesting you mentioned Junior Dad because I was thinking about like the baseline in Junior Dad is kind of like the cello part in this sure, and those are both some of his most profound songs. And and one thing that I don't know if this has any relevance anywhere. One thing he did say about the song street hassle is that it's uh it's a uh it's a gay story and like she is like a you know it's not literally a a woman Mm -hmm. and i mean i'm not here to interpret that or to do Mm -hmm. any you know gender analysis or whatever but the way he's talked about it is that that's the vantage that he wrote it through right so some people have said that it's about his relationship with Rachel mm-hmm. ending. I mean, whether or not that's the case, I think that the fact that he did say that, I mean, that points to the idea that why part of why the song works as profoundly as it does is that it, it really is just about like human interaction on, on this level. That's like as intense as it goes, the, this sort of um, romantic, life life or death romance mm-hmm. that ends in death in this case um but it it doesn't it's not dependent upon gender um or sex no. it's, it is really actually just um about something more wide-reaching than that mm-hmm. 
Believe me, that's just a lie. That's why she tells her friends. It's a real song, a real song that she won't even admit to herself. It's beating her heart. It's a song lots of people know. It's a painful song. It'll always say the truth. It'll last for sad songs. A painful wish. I wish it won't make it so dreary. With a pretty kiss, or a pretty face can't have its way. Don't trance like us. One final thing. Do you think that having Springsteen on this, if you listen to Street Hassle, you think of Jungle Land and you think of the the Bruce Springsteen just coming off of Born to Run a couple years run, earlier. Yeah. All these street epics. Yeah. Backstreets, Jungle Land. And this is almost like Lou dropping the ultimate street epic yes. on anybody. It's almost like my street epic is so epic. I have the guy who yeah. does street epics on my epic. Yeah, it's true. It's a, making a cameo on my street epic. Uncredited cameo because the record label wouldn't even let him put his fucking name mm-hmm. on the credits. Yeah. I, I, it's, I, that really is like, I mean, the, the legend is that Bruce was in the same studio and Lou like was clearly interpolating born to run. And so like, he just walked down a couple flights of stairs and went and found Bruce and was like, Hey, you want to come up and cut this with me? And Bruce was like, yep, absolutely. I'm in and out in 10 minutes. Um, so like, that's obviously such a perfect kind of just like, can you fucking believe what the world was like in 1978 kind of moment of, of trivia history? Um, but there, there is also this like beautiful kind of rhyming, um, uh, like uh, f- factor to Bruce doing this on this song for Lou because I, I do feel like Bruce has always or certainly at this point in his time Bruce was kind of like the like the Disney-fied version of Lou to some extent right he's just like he's a, he's a he's a a simpler and easier more palatable a bigger audience he, he's what Lou could have been if Lou really kind of sanded down his rough age, edges just getting Bruce in here to to play this part um and uh wallowing the shit with Lou uh which wallowing in the shit is not something that um you know Bruce did on his own very much he did to some extent on Darkness and Nebraska has a little bit of that but it, you know it doesn't get as ugly as you get on Street Hassle Badlands? No. I don't know Badlands is kind of like Street Hassle but yeah, yeah the, the, there's, they have that kind of relationship. Bruce has never said like, cunt on a record. And the one, the other point about the bo- uh, the the Springsteen thing is like he's the boss at this point, and Lou has always known when to play a card that will draw attention hmm. to him as well. Whether mm-hmm. it's Andy Warhol or David mm-hmm. Bowie or Bruce Springsteen That's or Metallica, point. he's always known how to play the game. In a way that he doesn't major in it, but he always knows anything that'll keep me in the 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 spotlight on the front burner. It's uh, it's worth doing now and again, sure, because it keeps me relevant and it keeps people talking. It's not that he never did it in a gross way, um, but it's something he clearly has been aware of. That's oh, he point. never did it in a gross way. Except for what Luciano Pavarotti, you gonna drop that on me? <laughs> that was a cool. That was what. That was the coolest one. No, that's cool. What I'm c- trying to get to is times when he was being provocative and attention drawing in a way that was not great. 
Oh, I just mean in terms of associating with famous people. I just mean in terms of utilizing famous people to draw attention to his own music. As a, as a, like a, a schmoozing kind of businessy, um, yeah, it's like an industry he's, guy. He's playing the game. Yeah, he, yeah, he, yeah. He, yeah. He's, he's shrewd. He's canny. He's sharp. In a very subtle um, way. But yes, now go and, on. I know where you want to go. And then anyway, <laughs> I, I Want to Be Black is a terrible song. I want to be black. want to be like Martin Luther King and get myself shot in the spring. Need a whole generation too. And fuck up the two. Just listen, the chutzpah to follow up Street Hassle with it takes I Want to Be Black is just, mm-hmm. that alone uh, makes me fucking crack a grin when the first couple seconds of this song hit after Street Hassle's in it, and I'm like, I remember, oh yeah, this is the next song, and then I, you know, then, then I have to listen what? to the rest of the song. Yeah, it's, this is what I was talking about when I said none of the albums are perfect, is, mm-hmm. and obviously... It's him taking aim at white liberal college students. Yep. Not people of color. Yeah. But it's coming out of a certain period when also people could just make fun of each other and say the thing. And it's just like, and you're just like, okay, well, that was then. This is, <laughs> yeah, exactly. it really hits your ear really, Real really different. hard now. It hits different in a bad way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh it no, and it, it's totally a bad, in a bad way. But it's just like, yeah, like let's give the good faith reading of it though, just for the sake of argument. Yeah, he's really kind of like trying to make fun of, yeah, a of the reductive and um, stupid view of of black musicians, black culture, mm-hmm. um, and uh, he probably didn't need to do that. Uh, he probably just didn't need to do that. You know. His heart is probably in the right place-ish. So I guess, well, fuck it, the Jews is pretty. He's getting ready for his stand-up debut also. You have to remember oh, yeah, that. Exactly. Yeah. Boy, he's the five feet from... testing material. Yes. This is, Jesus. This is laying the groundwork for Take No Prisoners. At least he doesn't <laughs> drop the actual... Uh, you know, slur in, in this song the way that he does in Take No Prisoner. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah, he saves that for, for the live. For the live one. Yeah. And that's the thing with it is it's people, you can say it's of the time. It was still horrible of the time, too. Right. In 78, that still sucked in 78. But it's something that people felt, some people felt they had the latitude to get away with in the quest to make a larger point but i'm not going to defend that at all it's a slur is a slur and that's yeah. where well, the that fact stuck. that it can be misunderstood and hurt someone is really the problem like i get i think we all can understand what he was going for and mm-hmm. give that good faith reading because there's so much to support that and we could go into that but mm-hmm. the fact is it could be misunderstood and come across as just like Oh great! Another prominent white guy is making fun of black people. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, fucking great! Like, and he, I think that it, it's it just shows a kind of recklessness that is not worth it. It's something we just talked about with um <laughs> with fucking John Cale. I was and Brian just gonna say, <laughs> yeah, the fucking that the mask thing. The Brian <laughs> Brian Eno wearing the rapist mask because yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> Tom Testafilia and Brian Eno showed up uh, in a studio with a mask that said rapist on it. As after a gag. They were, as a gag, as a bit, because they mm-hmm. were in a town where there was a serial rapist. That's a real, uh, real good laugh from Brian. That's a knee slapper. That's who you turn to for comedy. Brian Eno. He's, yeah. he's a very funny guy. <laughs> Also kind of rhymes with, uh, you know, this instance uh, from Lou rhymes with John and the chicken thing from 77. Yeah. Like just mm-hmm. these these completely out there fucking uh, uh, decisions meant to shock and scandalize and, and piss people off that, you know, at the time there might have been some degree of, uh, you know, admiration to be extended to them just due to their willingness to try to be so confrontational and uh, and groundbreaking and, and um, uh, difficult, you know, for lack of a better term. And, uh, you know, just as just as cutting a chicken's head off and throwing it into the crowd has not aged well. It's not so, worth it. So, so too, as, uh, as I want to be black. And one thing to remember also is that he is a uh, raging drug addict at this point out of his mind like yeah they're both like this is the bubble the balloon is about to pop for lou uh in two years he's about to he's he's close to hitting his bottom right, right now this Bottoming is a out. person who is out of his mind often out of his mind the record sounds like somebody like somebody a lot of it sounds like somebody on meth making a record. It really does. It's yes. It's way too anxious and and aggressive and mean and ugly. It's just it's an ugly record. I mean, what's the ugliest thing? It, I think this and Metal Machine Music and Lulu are the three ugliest records. Berlin, you throw Berlin in there too, but Berlin has soft. It, I would say that this is at the top of the pyramid when it comes to ugly art for Lou. Yeah. This record. Yeah. Ugly art and art all the same, but uh, you know, it just doesn't always land. Yeah. I'm not excusing. I'm just explaining it. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, say. I think we can excuse him and on some level and just acknowledge that it's like, um, <laughs> Well, you know, he Sorry, himself, like, no, yeah, he himself began, you know, stopped playing the song live. He played it a lot live in mm-hmm. you know, a couple of years following, uh, you know, the release of Street Hassle. But I think, you know, by the mid late 80s, he was like, you know, I'm, let, I'm letting that one sit at yeah. that point. So I think he himself, you know, kind of obviously yeah. ended up uh, coming around to. Uh, Without uh, a doubt, he also. Um, this is the Lenny Bruce influence coming through. Yes, also, sure. Which yeah. you cannot discount that for Lou. That is a huge part of who he was and what informed him was the idea of of pushing the envelope, pressing buttons, saying the things that other people won't say. And sometimes there's a reason why other people don't say the things. That's true. It's very yeah. simple. We should move on. I, I final thing I'd say is he kind of remember he doesn't think he's going to be alive for much longer. Also, <laughs> when he point. makes this, so he's not making this for twenty twenty two. He's thinking there's a very good chance I'll die next week. Right. 
So let's have a real good time together. Real good time together, yes. yeah. Speaking of ugly for ugliness sake, uh, like the way this song sounds, so this is this is the latest Velvet's rewrite that he's pulled out, theme song to Jokerman Podcast, should be noted. Yeah. Um, uh, but here we are all the way down in 1978, uh, and he's still pulling old chestnuts out of the Velvet's uh, catalog. The way that this version, like you talked about The chestnut underground. It, okay. Like that. Well done. Sorry. Uh, music that sounds like it's made by someone on meth. This, I think this is the perfect example of that. Like the way yeah. that all of the instruments are just, I think it, they're, I think live, I'm guessing the full band was playing and they just wait until two minutes in and they bring up the levels on the drums and the rest of the guitar and the bass and stuff. But the way mm-hmm. that most of this song is just that like tremulous voice from Lou where he sounds like he's about ready to start crying and then that echoey guitar, it's just such a... We're gonna have a good time together. We're gonna have a real good time together. We're gonna have a real good time together. It's such an off-putting sound for such a basic, simple, kind of straight-ahead rock song. Uh, Mm -hmm. I think clearly he's just like, yeah, this needs to be ugly for ugliness's sake. Yeah. Now, if I was trying to think this through, I believe this would be the final VU song repurposed in his catalog. I think so. On a solo album. I think this is this is the final one that he would take a crack at um as a solo artist. And it has so little to do with it's like it's like he's mad at the original version of the song. <laughs> it's almost like the way somebody would do like a mocking cover of a song. He's doing that to his own song, going back, Evan, to your point that it's a constant comment. The record mm. is a comment on it on itself, and Lou is constantly commenting on himself. He's now covering; he's doing a mocking cover of his own song. Yes, yeah. I think this this is where the record picks up a little bit from that uh, last one, and I mean, it connects back to the first song. Give me some good times. Is this really like intentionally stunted and cruel? version of uh his own legacy being like represented um and um real good time together is kind of like an extension of what he goes for on giving some good times he's able to use that as a canvas for like whatever that current energy is and i think to your point Ian, that's like why it sounds so odd i didn't i think you're totally right too about them just (laughs) raising the levels up Gradually, mm-hmm. that's what that's it's like, got to be. Yeah. yeah, it's got it. I but I never would have thought of that. And it sounds, honestly, it kicks ass by the end of it once the whole band comes in and, like, everyone's, like, going. Uh, like, there's even some horns going, it sounds like. Um, like, that rocks. But, yeah, I mean, I think I think that everything that is, like, uh, explicit in Give Me Some Good Times where he's shitting on himself 
from a distance is sort of like implicit in Real Good Time Together, where he's he's implicitly shitting on his own music, uh, uh, not saying, you know, <laughs> you suck, uh, but just making it sound like it sucks, basically. You know what it reminds me of is another record that Lou Reed had an affection for and definitely influenced it on some level, spiritually or just through the air. But it's like Yeezus. It's like on Yeezus when Kanye is like, throwing in these classic Kanye moments that then just get ripped away from you. And you're like, oh, that was sweet. And then it's just gone. And it's back to this kind of bitter, self-referential, self-hating, self-loving thing. Um, This is a really early example of this kind of like weird meta relationship to one's own catalog. I think this record Mm -hmm. has a lot in common with that one. Yeezus, Uh, Kanye West's Street Hassle. You heard it here first, folks. It, it fully is. Uh, well, let's uh, let's bring it home here with this last uh, trio of songs, which are a couple different notes. Uh, just kind of a weird. This record's weird. I, I, there's no other way to say. It. Like it's it's amazing. It's one of his greatest records, if not his greatest record. Like full full stop. But it's just fucking weird. And, and I think the way that that it ends with these last three songs is like the perfect illustration of that um shooting star uh first one is just like man his vocal on this we haven't we haven't talked enough about his singing i think but like this voice is really yeah and also run through this weird process that this Right. This thing where they had the mic and the we didn't talk about the binaural the bi- binaural process. Yeah, where... friend of the pod, Jonathan Rado has one of those. Okay, yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, wow. of course he has one. It's like mm-hmm. a it's literally like a mannequin's head. Yeah, that he could use as a microphone. Look, it, it's a it is a weird record, and it still hasn't stopped. Even though it's getting, it's kind of tilting slightly toward normalcy by degrees here. It's still a weird record. When you say weird, yeah. I assume you're referring to the pacing of it, because that's how, I what... just, the, the pacing and the energy of it is just it's just so off putting, and I I think like putting like like um having like real good time together on it almost feels like uh like a fuck you to the to like the label of just like this is the least good time song i could ever give you it's like it's almost like if you want a it's like what if i put a song called real good time together on this like we're gonna have a real good time together and it's just jittery and uncomfortable and mixed so strangely. Um, again, I, I want anytime you want to second guess him, he was always ahead of all of us. He knew what he was. He knew what he was doing. This is this goes back to uh, there was a quote from one of the recent episodes we did. I forget which one at this point, but you know it was something about Lou. Um, I think we were talking to Tyler about it. Maybe uh, like um, Lou uh, knowing what what was the correct thing to do, like artistically or commercially speaking. Uh, and yet deliberately choosing to have someone play a flubbed bass note or leave mm-hmm. in some weird kind of vocal take and just being like, it's that way because I want it to fucking be that way. Mm-hmm. And like, that's that's what it's going to be. I don't give a shit about what's going to sell 10 more records or what's going to get more airplay on uh, on FM 
radio, and uh, mm-hmm. that's, that's the perfect well, example. Here. That's that's an interesting point because I think it's like a kind of subtle way of utilizing. It's the way that he utilized his influence, um, like commanded his influence. It wasn't always like he wasn't trying to like be the like king of the punk guys. He could have dressed up like them and like tried to do that, but I think instead it seems like the way that he wanted to like show how it's done was just deliberately being kind of messy, like showing that you can make a record that is not like you said earlier, Tom, like that it like it's like you can get away with making a record that's imperfect. And in fact, that's kind of how it should be. Like it shouldn't always be perfect. It's more just about the, the drama is on like the communication, the attempted Mm -hmm. communication. And I think he understands that really well. Yeah, and I mean, he was never, with there's exceptions here and there, he was never the guy who made studio records where you're just like, how could you ever play that live? Right. Everything is very ultimately stripped down enough to be performed live in some fashion or configuration. He was not making Phil Spector records or Brian Wilson records where it's just like, how would you ever bring that? How would you ever interpret that on stage? It's always a song. Mm -hmm. And he didn't really use the studio to a degree where it was just like, well, that's what the record sounds like in live. It sounds like that. It's like, no, there's, there's, it's, it's, it's close to Neil Young in that way. And Dylan in that way where they are making records that they can go play. Yeah, just to capture this this iteration of this musical kind of concept, basically, and not fuss mm-hmm. over that product that's going to be, you know, pressed and and packaged and bought and sold, you know, around the country, basically. I think it's a, you know, uh, you know, obviously we're in a completely different world, completely different time at this point, but a a uh, an admirable. Uh, you know, kind of approach to the record business, quote unquote, that uh, more folks could uh, could could bring back these days. Well, it's it's a Warhol like Warholian idea in a way. It, it's like he understands that he's the main attraction. His personality and his presence is really what should be at the center of this. It's something that goes back to his appreciation and and Bob Dylan's of these performers. And the fact that they're like there in person performing for you. Mm. And so it's like, I'm sure there's like a little bit of a, this sense of competition with like the sounds you can do now. And I think these attempts to make it a little bit shaggy on purpose are like kind of asserting dominance by being like, no, it's really it doesn't matter unless you matter unless yeah i'm not playing like, your fucking game man i don't give a shit about that yeah it's like warhol warhol made it all about that like that was it's like these people just have a cool a thing about them uh you can just show them in silence and black and white and they'll like be something to look at right there's an essence and and i think bob dylan for sure and lou they understand that is like if you don't do if you don't recognize that you're kind of admitting defeat that's why he's so comfortable with doing these like simple rock songs like leave me alone and
just like trudging, kind of, like kind of just like like kind of annoying to listen to. <laughs> Honestly, mm-hmm. I, I, like I like the song, but like it it doesn't really go anywhere, and it just kind of like takes forever, and he just spins like three minutes just repeating "aha, oh yeah, aha, oh yeah." <laughs> Uh, again, like a fucking just, and coming after, uh, what was the previous record? It was Rock and Roll Heart, which was a record, like, like you almost wish that he would have saved a little bit of Rock and Roll Heart for this, and just so we had some banging on my drum, and some, like, easy to digest you kind of like pop weight? moments. No, well, Wait is that song, but which we'll get to in a moment, but I think Shooting Star and um, Leave Me Alone are really interesting, but it's like 10 minutes of just, like, sort of laborious listening on the second half of this record that has no... Uh, you know, uh, pretensions to any sort of like, you know, uh, listenability whatsoever. And then he wraps it up with Wait, which is that uh, I think it's probably my favorite song on the record besides Street Hassle, really? the song, uh, of course. But uh, I mean, this is like a perfect, like, you know, as close to just like straightforward, like actual doo wop, I think, as Lou ever gets. And he just fucking nails it on this one. Mm-hmm. We didn't really touch on Shooting Star, Leave Me Alone that much. But yeah, they're just kind of like, they're they're good, but they're not much more than that. They're kind of there, like as like a. It's not filler because I think would it be, is sort. Yeah, it's, it's not. Well, it's filler, it, but it's like intentionally filler. Exactly, it's like, like meant to be filler, right? Because it kind of is like I put Street Hustle at song three. Uh, what do you want? <laughs> like, I, there's a whole other side me? of this record that's got to have twenty minutes of music on it. Yeah. No, it's it's an interesting thing because also it was he knows that Street Hassle is going to be the centerpiece to this thing, so that's going to eat up two thirds of one of the sides of the album, and he doesn't have two long songs. He has one, so it's like, yeah, it's just I I, I think it makes sense to me and he knows where he knows the the weight is kind of like this this kind of like ice pack you get for your head after the rest of the album <laughs> exactly to just be like ah we're good <laughs> right everything's fine guys i know i took you down some rough roads but i could still be lou and i was and now we'll say goodbye now go start the record over and it'll be you're going to feel sick to your stomach again. Yeah, exactly. It really just sends you off with a little, uh, little, uh, little peck on the cheek uh, right mm-hmm. into the nighttime, and you just completely forgot the house of horrors you just exited. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the it's... ugliest fucking thing imaginable. And it kind yeah. of leads into what he'll do on the bells, kind of full Yeah, scale. definitely telegraphs where he's going on the bells. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then in a few years, he'll be... Riding his motorcycle around New Jersey. <laughs> it's coming. Oh, man. Street Hassle. What a record. The best. It is. It's one of them. There's no question. It's a record that gets away with being called the best, even though like half, like almost fully half of it is kind of just like extra stuff. It It's like... 
Well, I, I only think it's extra stuff compared to his finest achievement. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, you've got this like thing, this anchor at the center of it that just actually the other stuff on this record just um, it's it's actually kind of just nice adornment to mm-hmm. this thing that has such a like strong center of gravity. Yeah. I mean, think about it this way. If there was no song Street Hassle and there were three regular songs on this instead of that big 11 minute piece of work Hmm. then it would be this it would be this amazing album this amazing ugly album where one song is after it would be the most punk album he ever did in 78 Mm -hmm. sure but it has this this strange art project as the centerpiece right yeah and this thing that actually makes you, I think it takes the edge off. Like you, you were talking about like weight it, that takes the edge off in a certain way, which is actually, you know, it's a relief at the end of the record to have this kind of pleasant, straightforward rock song, but street asshole takes the edge off in the way where it's like, I know how messed up what I'm talking about is. And I know, you know, and it, it lets mm-hmm. you kind of feel like you're looking at the whole thing um, from this perspective that actually like, honors the intelligence of the listener and takes care of like it, it takes care to like, show that he's thinking a lot about everything he's doing, even when it seems like he's not. Yeah. That's the mystery and the magic of Lou is that he was always thinking when it seemed like he wasn't, he was. Yeah. Uh, three stars for me for Street Hassle. That's <laughs> I'm sure folks yeah. can see that one coming. Uh, Tom, we use the, the three star rating system here. One, two, mm-hmm. three. What do you give it? Oh, it's three. It would All have right. to be three. I also give it a three. three Thank you for Thank you for not being too much of a contrarian. No, no, no. I, I was a contrarian. Um, I was so much older then, et cetera. You know. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, we did it. Street hassle. Amazing. What a record. Next time we talk about it, I might be a contrarian. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, I won't. <laughs> a one no. star. This no, sucks. It'll get, it'll get a three again. Uh. Uh, well, thank you so much for joining us, Tom. Uh, not wow. that uh, you need to to plug your stuff on uh, our lowly little uh, program here, <laughs> but where, where can the folks at home find you as if they don't already know? Oh, um, you can get me over at, at Sharpling on social media or listen to The Best Show every Tuesday over at thebestshow.net. There you go. You just you and Tim just uh, hopped onto a new network or something with that, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, best show in office hours are part of uh, something. Forever dog. dog. Forever dog. Forever dog. Mazel. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. No, we're very excited. It's a good thing, and the future is so bright. That's 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 true, brother. <laughs> Everyone's yeah. life is just going great, and everything is I headed feel. in the right direction. That's how I feel Everything. after listening to this album. Exactly. <laughs> sure, look, just be appreciative that's not you writing that album. That's, that's, what I was, that's not your life. You're free. Jokerman. Spring I know I shouldn't, but please wait. I know the time is getting late. And he is lost in hesitation. 
still I really wish they would wait Although the fashion might evade And find you in another state But we'll see this is on the stage Oh babe, I really think you ought to Give 